Hello, good morning, and welcome. It's Tuesday, the 10th of March, 2020, and we're back with episode 141. You know, I had hoped to share with you today some pretty exciting news, but unfortunately, thanks to this accursed COVID-19, the coronavirus, well, that good news is now rather not so good news. Um, we, I say we, Hogan Co., our new autonomous vehicle and mobility consulting firm, we had been invited to uh, have a booth at the upcoming Move America 2020 conference uh, in Austin, Texas this May. Well, you can see where I'm going with this. This conference, of course, along with, well, pretty much every other conference around the world has, of course, been delayed, in this case, till September. So yeah, we were obviously very much looking forward to that. It would have been a really, really the best venue for us to properly kick off everything we're up to in style. Um, So it is a bit of a setback, uh, but suffice to say, if you were planning on attending, well, we will see you in September. Speaking of Hogan Co., please don't forget to check out our website at hogandco.com. That's H-O-A-G-A-N-D-C-O. And while you're there at the top, you'll see a blue banner. That's the link to our survey on consumer acceptance of autonomous cars. It is pretty lengthy. Expect to spend about 10 minutes on it. But there's a reason for this. The questions are plentiful, and most importantly, they are very deep thinking. They will give you pause to consider your answers before you submit them, uh, and we hope that in the process, you'll learn a lot about yourself, too. Um, Speaking of Hogan Co., don't forget to follow us on all social media at Hogan Co., and don't forget to follow me individually on all social media at Autonomous Hogue. All right, then. Today, episode 141, we've got another special guest, Paul Newman. No, not that Paul Newman. This is Paul Newman from Oxbotica. Yep, he's the founder of Oxbotica, and if that name sounds at all familiar, you will remember that we've done at least one, if not perhaps two episodes about them uh, in the last two years. They are the UK-based AV, really best described as an AV platform company. They aren't developing, for instance, a taxi or ride-sharing car product. They're not developing um, just, say, a hardware stack for a particular partner or supplier. Rather, they are developing the entire platform, hardware and software, for use in, well, all industries, whether it's, well, cars or even aviation or mining. Uh, But without telling you too much about it myself, why don't we just hear it from Paul himself? So I do hope you're sitting comfortably. We've got a wonderful conversation with Paul Newman from Oxpotica right now. Hey, before getting started, and please don't skip through this, this is not an ad spot. Rather, it's sort of a favor for a friend and colleague of mine. If you're in the AV and mobility space, or indeed automotive more broadly speaking, and if you're looking for an incredible PR agency to help you out, I'd like to introduce you to Scott Fosgard and his team over at Scott Fosgard Communications. So Scott and his team have spent their entire careers developing relationships in the automotive space. Indeed, they've worked directly for GM, Ford, and Chrysler, and even their suppliers in the past. And what makes Scott and his team so unique, I I think truly, genuinely unique, is their singular focus on clients in the AV and mobility space. So just to give you an example, some of their former and current clients have included the likes of Vulog, which, if that sounds familiar, we had Alex Tebow on the show not too long ago, Uh, Upstream Auto, Einride, 
uh, Fortelix, Delphi Technologies. Anyway, look, I can't speak highly enough about Scott as a person and indeed his team. I think they are really incredible. Um, if you'd like an intro, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'll, I will personally make that intro for you. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at mark at hogandco.com or, of course, on Twitter. And meanwhile, go ahead and check out their website over at scottfosgard.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-F-O-S-G-A-R-D. Thanks very much. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, the, the mic. I, I hear you loud and clear. Yeah, no, no, it's great. Okay. Um, so you've spent some time in LA then, it sounds like. Oh, no, I travel through from time to time. I've never okay. sort of lived there. I mean, I lived out in, um, I've had a sort of a checkered history um, in where I lived. I was out in Boston at MIT for a while. Um, so 2000 to 2003, I was postdocing and a research scientist out at MIT. Um, and then before that, I was down in Sydney, which was awesome. Um, so that's where I really got into field robotics, um, down in Sydney, doing my, my PhD down there. So I've like, had a really fortunate, really fortunate career, I think, in the sort of problem set I've had to work on and the people and places I've seen. And, and I guess in particular, um, you know, the sort of the research topic that I found myself working on um, down in Sydney, there was like one, it's like one moment, and I can remember it was like 16th of March, 1996, and I was crossing a road down in Sydney, and on one side of this road, I was talking to my friend. On the other side of the road, when we crossed it, I'd been introduced to the mother of all robotics problems that I would spend the rest of my life working on, um, and everything I've done since then has been about that problem, about how the hell do you make a machine know where it is, always end problem statement how interesting is that right just never ever get lost can you let a machine do that and then there were subsidiary problems like you know where am i what's around me what should i do but that fundamental problem of just never getting lost always knowing where you are makes things like autonomous vehicles obviously going to happen um so i feel super super fortunate i've been able to work on on that problem on land underwater uh, on roads, down mines. I've had a, I've had a, I've had a ball, and I'm still having a ball. So I feel pretty lucky. That is pretty amazing. And, and yeah. before we dive in real quick, I just noticed something. Does the name Nick Reed ring a bell? Also up in Oxford. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very Nick. cool. Yeah. So if you go to our about page at Hogan Co., you might see a familiar photo. Um, but that's a cool. discussion for another time, perhaps. But yeah, that's great. What a small world. I always no, no, no Nick, Nick, Nick. I've known for years. He's a, he's a. He's, he's one of the best humans, right? He is pretty great. He, he is pretty amazing. Uh, we should count ourselves in the set of best humans. Let's do it. We'll I know, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think it's free. I, 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 I think membership is free. Sounds good yeah. to me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well, great. Look, this is a neat, perfect bit of timing, actually, I have to say, because uh, let's see, in October, I actually happened to do a segment on a podcast episode about, well, Oxpotica which was pretty neat. So neat. to finally connect with you now and chat with you here today is, is really great. Um, let's see. And as I recall, the, the, it was sort of a kind of a high level thing, something about how you had just sort of partnered up with Addison Lee and yeah. the idea was to begin um, testing 
your yep. kit on obviously backup driver equipped, I think Ford Mondeos perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the idea was to get actual passenger service going by 2021. I'd love to maybe kick it off with sort of um, an idea of where things are headed, how that timeline's looking, yep. and then kind of discuss both the technical side, of course, my favorites, but also there's a big discussion, I think, that we should at least touch on the issue of how this impacts society as a whole, not least of which with respect to our beloved London cabbies. Let's do it. Okay, so, um, so this the Endeavour project you're talking about there, that's on the back of something we did um, last summer where we uh, had a fleet of vehicles driving autonomously in London, uh, around East London, which was which is pretty great, and we put a whole heap of people in there. So that was the first time we'd sort of been autonomous in the, in the London's capital. And um, one of the awesome things about the UK is the sort of support that we have uh, from government to really catalyze this technology. And, you know, I, I can remember literally making the call call or the cold call um, into government saying, look, um, I've come back from the States and we really should do this uh, autonomous vehicle business here. And the UK government really got behind that and it's really opened the country for business and has been really supportive. And so the Driven project that we were doing around London, that was part of that. And Endeavour is a continuation of that that we'll see coming through uh, this summer. And on the partnerships there, we've got some interesting things to be saying about new partners coming up in the next uh, couple of weeks. If we were doing it in a couple of weeks, I'd been able to tell you, but that's really, you know, that's really great. And I mean, I, I guess it's a good way to say that never wanted to start a cab company, right? Ne- never wanted to do that. So what Oxbodica is, is a, a software platform company. One of the applications is, you know, uh, taxis. Um, but we've got a bigger scope that I'd like to talk to you about, about all vehicles that move on how we do that. So one of these threads is on road in the city. And it was it was pretty thrilling um, last summer. Uh, you'd think it was, summer would be good weather, but it was biblical rain having these vehicles driving through the city doing uh, doing that. That was pretty cool for us. So that I mean, it's a good way to test their and validate their capabilities. Yeah. And, you know, we one of the things I, I, I care about is um, making sure you have. Uh, a redundancy and independence of sensors as well. So it's not it's not just pure vision; it's laser vision and radar. So yeah, certainly doing things in the pouring rain and the fog that's a, that's a, a pretty interesting thing to do. And you know, there were some really interesting spots to be driving around London. Um, some really interesting pieces of communication between the vehicle and the humans on the side of the road, especially outside one of the big stations, one of the big um, underground stations. You know, if the car pulled away very gently, people took that as a signal from the vehicle that it knew they were going to run across in front of it. So some, I've got some really exquisite moments um, that came to me uh, from, from the team about, well, you know, what do you actually want to do here? Because this is in absolute opposition from what you would expect the vehicle to be communicating. So the learnings that we had from sticking that fleet of vehicles around London and carrying through into Endeavour was was pretty cool. And do you know what I really loved is the same day as we were doing that, we were running the same vehicles in a quarry and through a forest with exactly the same code. And that's a really big thing for us in terms of efficiency. So we're not building something that understands roads. We're building something that answers, where am I? Full stop. It's kind of an all-terrain, all-location, all-environment application. Yeah, totally. So the hardware, the software suite, the whole the whole stack. Yeah, totally. So... You know, and, and it sounds like a really big call, doesn't it? I mean, we call it we call it universal autonomy, but that's really where we started. Like looking back at my heritage, it was never about self-driving cars. My my heritage and the team's heritage was: can you write software that allows a machine to know where it is, what's around it, what should it do? 
one of those applications happens to be self-driving vehicles and the vehicles that have like you like you say you know the vehicle that has no steering wheel and no windscreen um, and has the same operation as you and your car paired functionally you do know that's a way off um, but there are lots of avenues and lots of places where you can capitalize this technology before that comes if you can work agnostically to the domain and the weather and the places so for me like the, the driven thing and the endeavor thing that's really great love it but to literally have the same release of code running through a mine and a quarry and a forest on the same day uh, with all the same tech where there's nothing in common with a wood and a muddy field and central london that for me was a really compelling moment and that's really what you know it's really what i'm about like you know say so how do you do this well if it, you know when i you know, I go to sleep and I wake up, I'm thinking about how do you make the whole thing efficient? And efficient doesn't mean just run it on 350 watts and run it on the cheapest computer you have and be sensor agnostic. It's also use as little code as you can for all the environments. And I think if you start with that as your goal, um, the opportunities you have for commercialization and sequencing uh, make you smile. And I'm smiling. Well, is that all? I mean, that's <laughs> that's really impressive. I mean, so one of the things that I also noticed was that you're also effectively independent of any uh, such mundane necessities as GPS or internal mapping. I mean, this is pretty remarkable. I mean, as you say, it's literally a perception-based system that works everywhere without any of these annoying sort of things on the side. That's right. I mean, so the GPS. So, so what I like. So, I've got this universal autonomy thing, and I remember being out at MIT and I was working with John Leonard, and and we wrote down um like two two things. We wrote down t to infinity and x to infinity, and that's the that's the goal, right? So, all time and all places. If t is time and x is all places, that's right, right. That's a defining goal, right? Now, if you're going to do that, you really can't be dependent on external infrastructure. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm using my words carefully there for a Brit. I really mean dependent. It doesn't mean you shouldn't use it or cheat and leverage it. So we could not, I mean, it's a true thing that no GPS signal is inside buildings or down mines, right? Um, or near yeah. tall glass buildings. So I don't want to be dependent on it. So if it's available, sure. And I would say space rockets and satellites is your canonical piece of infrastructure. It's like, you know, you wouldn't depend on white lines or a particular kind of signage. Yeah, that sort of stuff has to be readable by the ecosystem that you build. And I'm fortunate in that I started working on this mother of all problems in 1996. So I got a real head start and building that, those kind of systems. And that was really sort of my heritage about get out of the lab, get outdoors, get out into the rain, and the universe will teach you actually the problems that you should be working on. So I was very fortunate that I had sort of the mindset and frankly, the environment at the University of Oxford to, to really get into that problem set that set Oxbodaker up on, on the way to be able to do that. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, so let's talk through a bit about the actual deployment. I mean, I hear what you're saying. It's, I think it's incredible that you've got this this kind of approach, which tackles all these different spaces. Is I mean, and just to be clear then, so you are literally providing the tech and the ideas that you would effectively, what, license this out to other operators in the respective fields? Sure, sure. So, I mean... You know, the full spiel is um, short, <laughs> blessedly, um, but it's, you know, Oxbodica um, is providing a universal autonomy software platform, right? 
And that platform's got multiple solutions that address the market in different ways, whether that's uh, a localizer that replaces GPS down to a couple of centimeter using any combination of vision or radar or LIDAR, or whether it's your perception system or your data management system, or your fleet management system. So yeah, that's exactly the model. And I don't want to become a taxi company. I don't want to become a miner. I don't want to become a port operator. These guys are all epic at those things, right? Miners are really good at mining. I've noticed this. And 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 cab companies are very good at being cab companies. I know nothing about that at all. But we really, really do know how to make machines answer. Where am I? What's around me? What should I do? So that is exactly our model is um, a licensing recurring revenue for people using this tech because they want their vehicles to do more. And, and my vision has always been let vehicles do more because what they do at the moment is pretty stupid. So I like this a lot. I think one of the big challenges that's often overlooked is that there's a lot of brilliant tech companies out there, let's face it. But the problem is that a lot of them, as you just sort of implied, is that there's a lot of companies that are doing tech that then try to build an actual consumer facing product rather than, I mean, let's face it, effectively, then what you're doing is a B2B company, you're, you're developing a platform, which you then sell to other companies who are producing yeah. the consumer facing product. That's, I think, a lot better of an approach. Well, cool. Mate, you're overloading product. What you mean there is a product that's got atoms in it. <laughs> so right. we're making a product too, but also only got bits. So our product is bits to move atoms. I don't want to be an atoms company because atoms seem really hard. That is a pretty cool way of putting it. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So, so well then in that case, let's talk about the actual deployment. I mean, if there's, I don't know if there's any sort of, I mean, besides Addison Lee, if there's any other company specifically you can talk about uh, or any sort of ideas more broadly, perhaps. I can't tell you right now. Um, but I can tell you that we're building that ecosystem. So look, so if you say, look, we're going to be a company that makes bits to move atoms, you sure as hell better have people that can supply and work with you on the atoms as well. Otherwise, you end up looking a bit dumb because you've got bits right. that can't affect the physical world. Um, and that's not so great. So what we're doing is like, for example, we've got our partnership with ZF, the tier one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There we're working on uh, deploying on some compute. So our perception system runs on their 30 watt um, pro AI. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, we announced last week a partnership with Cisco where we think about how are these vehicles going to talk to each other and talk to the infrastructure when they can without being dependent on it. Um, we've got conversations going with uh, the compute platforms. We've got some OEM conversations going on. I can't get into the details. But the point is, like, it must be true that Oxworker is building that ecosystem, right? Because otherwise we're not going to get to market. So, And I really enjoy that part of it. So the, the, the tech is great, and I, I adore that. But it's those conversations you have about how do you build that ecosystem, uh, and, you know, we've got a quite a cool, you know, opportunity here from the European angle as well, building that here. That's a, that's an interesting thing to be spending your time on. And some of the conversations are pretty, pretty eye opening. Um, yeah. It's busy over here too, right? Yeah. The road yeah. is busy and tight and rainy and foggy. And um, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of vehicles that move. I mean, I'd love to do airports. You know, you look at what well, we did. I mean, we, we were autonomous in Heathrow, uh, what, two and a half years ago, playing side. That was that was a good that was a good few weeks when we did that. Got some great movies of people looking at the wing mirror and there's a seven four seven behind them. <laughs> so and that was a great conversation with our, you know, with our investors AXA, um, AXA XL who are insurers as well. And and I think that's a thing that's often overlooked is in terms of building an ecosystem for autonomous vehicles, like insurance is the apex industry, right? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So our first client and first investor was, was AXA. Um, oh, XL Catlin, as was, as we think about what it means to be insuring and having insurers really get an intimate knowledge of how these machines are seeing, perceiving, and taking risks. And so a lot of people, when they say, why, why have you gone with an insurer to start with? I was like, well, dude, nothing's going to work unless it's insured. So you may as well get your insurer to be in the best possible situation. And let's open a pipeline to the insurer so we can become mutually epically informed about what these risks are. That's right, right? I mean, you're sitting at a traffic light and there's a number that says, I think it's red with this probability. Right, that's managing risk. And so, you know, how, how do you do that? So again, I mean, this comes back to this point about building an ecosystem. If you're going to do bits to move atoms, you have to build that ecosystem. And I'm, I'm proud about what we've done and what we'll be announcing over the next few months. Well, it's interesting you mentioned insurance. Uh, so at our firm, Hogan Co., one of our areas of focus is indeed insurance. And it's obviously a space that a lot of people anticipate to be disrupted. I think a lot of people maybe get it a bit backwards, though. There's a lot of sort of expectation that insurance is going to be ruined by autonomous vehicles. I actually rather disagree. I think it's just going to, there's going to be a huge shift, but I think in many ways it's going to benefit the entire, you know, the entire industry as a whole. And I think to see the way in which you guys are working with insurance, then, as you described, that, that's a pretty great approach. Yeah. So I think, well, you're very kind to say so. I think so what do, what do insurers not like? It's not that they don't like risk. They don't like variance on risk, right? So if you know what the probability of something happening was, you can take you can insure against that, right? That's, that's a simple multiplication and a bit of addition. Um, but if the variance on that is large and uncertain, um, and that's what interests me about insurance, is how by having a conversation with the insurer, and I mean a digital conversation, can you control the risk? Yeah, So how, so one of the things we did a couple of years ago um, was we a uh, digital insurance policy um, changing the behavior, the envelope of options available to the vehicle as a function of something quite detailed down in the vision system. Um, personally, I think that the, the, the way in which vehicles communicate between themselves and to infrastructure will have its greatest um, impact when it comes to insurance you know so and and i think you know this, that is the absolute knockout reason isn't it I mean, the sharing of these data while these machines are going to work is they'll be subhuman to start with but a fender bender in copenhagen will improve someone's performance of a vehicle or performance of a vehicle in an accident in cape town that afternoon because of data being shared and it may well be through the insurers that happens i think there's going to be very interesting plays in this area Hang on, can you flesh that out? You're, you're saying that if there's an accident in Cope, I mean, I get the link insofar as like sharing of data to improve performance down the road, but you're, you're suggesting that data then is going to be shared through the insurance company first somehow. Yeah, well, because well, look, it's, it's conceivable. I'm not telling you that's definitely what's going to happen, but here's where my head is on this, is that if you've got the same um, insurance body and it's a global insurer and they're looking after risk, there might be a digital insurance policy that says you actually need to have these updates. And there comes gotcha. an interesting thing like, well, I know I've got an update. I'm now compelled to push that update around to improve safety. And there's all the stuff that you've covered on data provenance and stuff. But I love, I love this topic because it just shows how much more this tech is than the stuff that runs on a few processors inside a vehicle. Yeah, it, we're talking about 
changing the way people and goods move forever, the way we as a species move atoms. You know, look out of a plane uh, and look how much of our infrastructure, of our geography we've changed because of how we move atoms. I think all of that gets touched by this tech. Uh, and it's just such, it's like, this is like Claxton time of a printing press coming out. There's just something extraordinary that's about to happen. I mean, I love I love your excitement about this. It's all quite palpable. It's pretty amazing just to hear you talk about it. And so just to use an analogy, if it's even an apt one, I don't know. Um, so Tesla obviously started providing insurance of their own, at least to California residents, and I think a couple other states, for instance. And the idea being, of course, that from a consumer point of view, this benefits them because obviously since they've got that real-time data, as it were, they can effectively dynamically change your insurance rates based on the kind of driver that you are. Um any thoughts insofar as comparing, contrasting kind of what you're talking about with what Tesla are up to? Well, it's a good, these guys are awesome in terms of what they what they do first. I think I think the way – so I've got ideas about what a digital driving test looks like. I think the fact of insurance in the loop modulating actually the behavior of what the vehicle does so you can control risk is wide open still. There's one thing about how you drive. There's another thing about how the vehicle should drive because – uh, a, a policy and insurance, a vehicle trying to manage risk has got an overall profile that you can't access as a human. That's interesting, right? So, okay. So you discussed the digital driving test. So can we dive into that a little bit, kind of unpack what you have in mind there? Because one of the things I've talked about quite a bit without necessarily getting too much into on this discussion with you, unless you really want to, is this notion of, uh, frankly, yeah. well, regulation and indeed regulation at a federal level. And I think that part of that involves both the need to standardize technology and performance of various tech. And the analogy I often give is the way we've got such standardizations mm -hmm. in aviation, not just with respect to the tech that's used or allowed, but also insofar as things like, well, redundant systems, which also we should touch on. Uh, I'd love yeah. to learn how you guys are tackling the need for redundancy. Sure. Um, so you kind of loop this all together and then you arrive at your comment a moment ago, digital driving tests. I think these all kind of go very much hand in hand because effectively, if you're talking about standardizing tech, that does at least implicitly suggest that, yes, of course, it must be digitally tested, the, the whole platform. So that's not really a question. It's more of a statement. I'm just going to let you run with it. <laughs> How does this all work together? Not unusually. You, you know, you're, you're right on that. So, and um, but. The, the execution plan of how we get to standardization, that's really tricky. And there's a great conversation going on at the moment on the electric interwebs about, um, you know, what metrics do you use right, to do this? So, you know, maybe it's it's the metrics that we need to have the conversation about and a more meaningful metric. And, you, and you've been across that. And there are now conversations about what actually is a useful mile rather than a mile and, and and that that's interesting as well mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this is the role of simulation comes into this as well so you know we've we've got our own sim tech here that was built because there are things that we think are important to be sure about and there are things that we think it's important to stress test um and you know simulations it's quite an intimate thing right because you don't want to just simulate inputs there are things that you might want to stress test and simulate inside the vehicle that are somewhat related to your architecture of what it means to make a plan or what it means to make a prediction or have an object that can make a prediction for the next 15 seconds. Um, and so, you know, I watch with interest conversations about standardization of simulations. I can, I do, I do get very interested in this. Look, here's a standard set of maneuvers and scenarios that scripted how you like 
you should be able to pass. I think that's conceivable as well. How on earth do you actually do? I mean, you know, driving tests for humans are not great. I mean, hey, this is the guy who failed his British driving test five times. Okay? Did you? That, that's on the record now. <laughs> I did. No, and I, I know I'll be, I'm, 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 I'm British, so we're always, you know, we're, we're very transparent and, you know, find it very easy. <laughs> um, on my third test, I had a forwards-backwards ambiguity issue, and I reversed into the wall of the test center. Um, oh and that, that's awkward. Um, so, but, but why do, why do I make that point? It's that <laughs> when, when we're driving ourselves, you know, um, I'm pretty sure I shouldn't have passed on that first driving t- on the time, the sixth time, you know, I was nervous. That's just like a half hour sampling. So the way we drive, you know, we test humans is, is imperfect as well. And I actually think the way we'll be able to test machines will be far superior to the way in which you're going to be able to test humans. And I think that's interesting as well, isn't it? Your assurity of how you drive. And also the fact that you're just going to say, I'm sorry, you just can't drive here. It just gets turned off. It's not like you shouldn't be driving at one o'clock in the morning when you're tired in the blizzard. The machine was out just not driving. It's one o'clock in the morning and there's a blizzard. And so there's a whole load of peripheral things that we can think about that we take for granted about how we drive ourselves. Um, I had a car accident myself and I didn't make my neighbor a better driver. That's not okay. So I want to get into a vehicle in 10 years time that's got the benefit of every kilometer driven by every other vehicle ever. That's exactly the opposite of what a 17 year old does. Yeah. So there are really compelling arguments that we were not thinking deeply enough. I think about even though these things are subhuman now, that power of integrating experience is inhuman. And we just do the opposite with 17 year olds when we let them drive now. I mean, I think you can drive earlier in the States, can't you? It's probably like nine. But um, <laughs> um, um, but um, over here, a good bit of British conservatism, yeah. Yeah, well, no. I mean, you don't have to convince me on this. I, I, I completely agree with everything you've just said, uh, not least of which the, the age of at which we can drive, especially here in the States, not least of which that it can be accomplished so easily. As I often say, one of the big problems we have here in the States is not only that it's super easy and cheap, affordable to get your driver's license, it's impossible to lose it forever. Look at Germany where it's super expensive and difficult to get your license and very, very easy to lose it forever. Um, we Can you, is that right? Can you not lose a driving license in the state forever? Is that really right? Well, I, 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 I don't, I don't know. I, I've never really heard of that. But I'm sure it's possible at some point, perhaps. Yes, but it's, it's exceedingly rare. I mean, you'll certainly lose it for months at a time or years at a time. Yeah, that is interesting. And, yeah. you know, and, and it's easy to kind of toss this this whole point aside as saying, oh, yes, well, it's out of necessity because driving is really more of a right than a privilege in the States because of our lack of adequate transport across the entire country and blah, blah, blah. A separate issue entirely. But but all of it, though, kind of comes together to show that it's a very different approach to driving generally. And, mm. and this kind of, I think, leads to the point that I think we were kind of alluding to, which is how best to start to integrate this stuff, this tech into existing roads. And obviously it sounds kind of fun to think back to the early 1900s when horses and carriages shared roads with the first automobiles. Um, but it's a bit different now, isn't it? It is a bit different. Um, my, my, let me just throw this out as a question. I mean, my maybe easy suggestion is take advantage of existing infrastructure that works for not private cars. So for example, in San Francisco and other cities, London, certainly um, you have dedicated bus lanes or dedicated, I don't know, trolley lanes or whatever. And my suggestion has been, look, why don't we at least just start there? Even if it's just one straight stretch of road, put these things on those limited bits of tarmac and go from there. Well, that's unquestionably a good idea, right? So 
why would you not? I think you need to make sure, though, that you have uh, a broad enough church of tech that you don't accidentally overfit to that early. Right. So uh, we're in loads of conversations um, about exactly that, about the deployment of shuttles in geofenced, but in some way purposed environments um, where, you know, because you've got an ODD. So what can you do? You can, you know, sort of product of tech times control is constant is is one way to think about it. So if you've got no control at all, your tech needs to be uh, mind bending. Um, And if you can control it a lot, like a mine, you can get there a lot sooner. So the sort of, you know, tech times controlled. Constantly. Right, right. Of course. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think I think that's fine. But, you know, there's a democratization thing here as well. I mean, I quite like, you know, to be able to in 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 countries that it's not so easy to re-put that to put that infrastructure down or um I think it's I think it's important that you have that big view in mind. And I absolutely agree. And when I started Oxbordica, I drew this arrow that said far end L5, no windscreen, right? No steering wheel. And on the way to that, simpler things, both for the components that make autonomy possible for mapping and localization and the places you run. And that's why I think the the um, oh, you, what did you you had a great phrase for it. It's kind of like. It's almost like you said it was like a hotel, but it's like a micro bus service. I think that's clearly going to happen. Um, oh, you mean you mean the thing that I've mentioned in the past, suggesting that roadside motel services might just sort of white label their own little motel pod cars, effectively? Yeah, right? it wasn't quite that. You had an analogy. It's a specialist hotel, but I, I mean, I think I'm, I'm mixed muddling your words there. But yeah, mm. look, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's a it's kind of like a an, an obvious yes. But let's not overfit, right? So, you know, like it's it's that argument of um, it's it's close to that independence and redundancy argument. Make sure you've got enough tech to not overfit to that one particular problem where that one sensing modality works, and that sort of ties into your question about the redundancy and the um the independence. Do you want to crack at that one now? Should we do that one? Should we not? Yeah, one? let's do it exactly, please, because I think that's a really critically important thing, and I think a lot of it's often glo- kind of glossed over really. And, and again, this kind of loops into the whole issue of standardization and sort of requirements, yeah. federal or otherwise. So yeah, what do you think about redundancy? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think you should use every photon and every type of photon you can, right? So those photons may be yours. So it could be a laser that you fire out and you want it to come back. And then some might be some radar photons. And then you might have some reflected photons from vision. Um, So, you know, I'm I'm being glib, but I think you need to have three different kinds of sensing, um, radar, vision, and LIDAR. They each have their own foibles and, and, and interesting things like cold diesels. Um, on February mornings um, can be problematic for lasers. Um, mm-hmm. I think radar is particularly exciting. Um, and uh, we've got, I mean, one of the things that we do is we stick you off road and have the whole thing driven, um, uh, localized off pure radar. So that's, that's pretty cool as well. I think radar is the big thing that comes. Um, they're not, they're not rubbish sensors actually. And they're not noisy. They're just complex. 
Um, so we're having a lot of fun with those. So there's, look, there's, there's, there's a couple of things, right? You need redundancy and independence. So redundancy is a multiplicity of the same sort of modality. So you literally took the words out of my mouth. I, I was re- exactly referring to that rather than alternative options that may or may yeah. not sort of overlap a bit. Overlook each other, right? So one's going to get fogged. One's going to get the glare of the sun in it. Um, uh, so you need to have a multiplicity of those and you need to have a multiplicity of the ways in which you see. And then here, this gets super interesting now. Inside your architecture, you better have multiple routes for that data to flow. You better have early fusion. You better have late fusion. You better have routes through that are independent. Um, and and or, you know, if you're thinking about your SOTIF, safety of the intended function, you better think quite carefully about what you're expecting to fail. Or no, wait, better than that. Expecting to give you the wrong answer even when it's working, right? And that's I think that's why you need to have the multiplicity of sensors and the redundancy of sensors to think about it. And you better, you better architect the thing that the sensors you're working with now um, are going to be not the ones you're going to be working with in six months. Well, certainly if you're sitting where we sit, which is bits, not atoms. Um, so you better think very carefully about that. We must have switched our lasers about three or four times on our radars similarly. So that, that's important to us as well. So, and this fits into that whole efficiency argument, right? So, you know, how, how you know, we, we pack a punch for our size, and we do that by thinking about efficiency, making sure that we know and plan for future Oxbordica to be way better than current Oxbordica because of current Oxbordica, right? So the things that we're doing now are teaching us about what we're going to need to do in the future. So we had better not be designing according to some big, long Gantt chart where you do design, build, and hope for the best. You know, time wraps around for us in that sense. It's a spiral. I wanted to ask you a thing I just... Uh, mentioned a few episodes back. I, I had never heard of it until then. Um, so-called ground penetrating radar. Uh, because you made a point the, a bit ago um, suggesting that, yeah. you know, there's nothing wrong with accepting that in certain conditions, even a otherwise fully capable autonomous car might just say, nope, can't drive. It's a blizzard. And I guess there's this argument that So let me actually, first of all, back up and say one thing. I think that the general trend, the excitement about, oh, everything's got to be level five, level five, level five. I think that's kind of a bit of marketing gimmickry in the sense that all that really matters, again, kind of as you alluded to, is have you got a really good level four car? It's okay if you can't drive in the middle of a massive blizzard. Humans can't do that either. But anyway, there's this idea of ground penetrating radar, effectively, my word, not theirs, sort of fingerprinting the road surface or rather under the surface, I should say. Um, What do you, just throwing it out there, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I had never heard of such a thing before and it sounded kind of at least interesting. So I guess, I've, you know, I've heard from GPR has been around for, for a while um, for the mining guys. Oh, yeah, right? okay. um, um, uh, and it has, it has it, that, that argument, right, is, is the same as why would you use radar anyway? Well, you know, it's the, if you look at the spectrum for absorption for, for water at 77 gigahertz, it's got a mm-hmm. gorgeous notch there, right? So it can see through stuff. And this, this is why you would use those bonds. So something that would like look through the ground and hope to see difference in structure there um that's an extension of that and there's a i think it was a team out of boston that were doing this for a while right in, in- right it was at mit and it was <clears throat> used in the military for i think six years yeah. or so yeah and the fingerprinting idea i mean that is exactly how how we do it with with the radar in that you know you don't try and make mm. it look like a, a laser um and the reason for that is it's not a laser so the the radar um takes a if you like it really does take a really lovely signature of the entire environment not just the first point of contact but the the whole point of contact if you the whole the whole scene if you do that so look i'm an advocate of radar that can see through stuff in an inhuman way um and that's what you want that's why i talk about you, you please use all the photons you can get your hands on right we shouldn't be 
we shouldn't be choosy about this. So yeah, I think that works. It might not work in all places, um, but that's true of all modalities, right? Yeah, and I think that's that's a key point to take away, right? Is that nothing will be perfect all the time in all situations. That's all right. It, I mean, nothing works everywhere all the time. And that's even, I mean, you you could, if you were going to be like super awkward and go, but humans just use their eyes. But that's because we are just off the scale good at stuff, right? I mean, how many times were you driving and you saw a car? You said, oh, no, actually, it was a camel. Like, you know, you... <laughs> <laughs> like I, not very often right i mean our our perception is just it's just ridiculously good because of all the swinging through trees that we did yeah there were, yep. there were you know there were members of us that of us species that weren't good at that so and and until we have you know human or even hedgehog level perception we're going to need to be using all the help that in sensor engineering can give and we should do that unashamedly uh, assuming you have a few minutes left, by the way, uh, just want to touch on a few other things. Great. Uh, as admittedly self-serving as this next question is. So we've started um, conducting this massive survey, if we're right, it should be the largest survey of its kind in the world, trying to understand the consumer acceptance of autonomous vehicles, meaning basically what it sounds like. Because I think one of the big issues with respect to adequately deploying, it doesn't matter how good the tech is, if consumers generally are hesitant or otherwise resistant, let's say, to it. Um, so besides the fact that I would love to share with you that survey and you know, if you have about 10 minutes, it's a pretty in-depth thing. Yeah, 10 minutes to fill it out. It's, yeah, it's cool. great though. Um, what you, is this anything you give much thought to insofar as... Um, insofar as a friction point, I guess, for adequately getting these things deployed. So um, your question wasn't, do I think about surveys? Your question was, do I think about... The consumer side of things, whether consumers will in fact embrace this. Yeah, what's the social acceptance of this? Yeah, so yeah. I, think about that all the, I think about that all the time, and I do quite a lot of work on that, actually. So this is not an engineering alone thing. This is about working with the law commission. So what is the law that's going to enable it to happen about the insurance? What's the what's the trust and the messaging that we're going to build up with society for why this is a good idea? So, you know, you don't get any credit for not having accidents. You're only getting the problem for having accidents as well. So there's a whole load of things we have to do about that social contract that we have for why this technology is a good idea. There are interesting things you could talk about in terms of what, what um, you know, just, just in terms of CO2 emissions. So if you look at the size of some of the vehicles we use to deliver around cities, are they really the right size for delivering small things around cities? Yeah, so there are some positive arguments that you can make about that if you can have uh, the transportation of atoms around cities using different modes of transport that don't involve um, uh, internal combustion engines or, or even electric vehicles of the right size, not a ton and a half for carrying a book, then there are interesting arguments to have. So I think we should build as a society a whole, a whole smorgasbord of arguments about why this new kind of technology, the new way to pilot atoms around cities gives us scope to change the way we move things for better less congestion co2 and i think we should be assertive about those things and not just make it about the safety concern which is obviously epic and defining and no one's having anything about that other than saying true things that's important but think about all those second order things um one of my favorite autonomy stories um is uh, a port that's autonomous um in australia and one of their biggest savings was they turned the lights off at night wow right so yeah, so because it doesn't need yeah. daylight, the sun happens to be up 
not depending on light. The fact that the uh, the tires last longer, there's less fuel. Um, the second order benefits of autonomy um, are very powerful and unexpected and add to the uh, the social contracts. And at the end of the day, it's the economy that's going to decide this, right? So if people want it, the economy, and it's just this ultimate arbiter. Do we want this kind of technology? Yeah. I mean, you, you alluded briefly to the to, to law generally. I don't know if you know, I actually am a licensed attorney here in California. So frankly, autonomous vehicle law is something which is foremost on my mind. Um, and mm. yeah, I think eventually, I'm hoping for eventually, we're going to see much more rigorous, basically just legal mandate to help expedite the deployment of AVs, uh, which again, kind of goes back to my point earlier yeah. about how great it would be to start, well, expediting deployment, at least in limited scenarios. And, you know, interestingly, I had a really fantastic conversation uh, last week with Jason Levine from the Center of Auto Safety in DC, you know, obviously brilliant, brilliant man, phenomenal wealth of information on all things AV, at least of which the law and policy issues, he himself also an attorney. And, you know, it's just really interesting. You hear somebody like him talk and, on the one hand, obviously hugely in favor of the promise that AVs offer eventually for safety, but on the flip side, being at the Center for Auto Safety, which I don't know if you know, but here in the US, they were the organization founded by uh, Ralph Nader 40 years ago, thanks to which we have things like lemon laws, the ability to get a manufacturer to buy, buy, your, buy back your car for a you know manufacturing defect. So obviously, though, his concern is fundamentally, first of all, the safety issue of all of this. And it does then raise this annoying balancing act. Where is that transition? How do you kind of gradually phase something in, recognizing and indeed admitting, nope, it's not perfect, but is it good enough? <laughs> That'll do kind of is where we need to be at, I think. And and how do you how do you count the accidents that are now not happening because there would have been human inattention at that junction when your four-year-old screamed in the back seat and you turned around. Well, right. There's that. There's also the issue of, I think it's called the the the, the paradox of safety. Uh, just a quick anecdote for you. I had the chance to, and by the way, sorry to the listeners who've heard this anecdote a few times, it's worth repeating to you. I'm curious what you think. Uh, having driven a Tesla back late at night, an hour's drive around midnight, familiar road for me through the SF Bay area from Silicon Valley to San Francisco and with my wife. And I realized, gosh, I could very easily fall asleep, not because I had blind faith in the autopilot itself, but rather because it was good enough that it simply made me a bit lazy and therefore more sleepy. Um, but if it was a fully traditional car without autopilot, I would have stayed more alert longer yep. anyway, right? But that, there is that weird paradox, right? You get through this kind of um, interim stage where, ironically, the increased safety makes things more dangerous. Until it isn't. I guess it's sort of that trough yeah, of disillusionment. Yeah, and, and of are you never in a recursion saying, and therefore it doesn't, yeah? Um, <laughs> right, basically. you were getting dozy doesn't feel unsolvable, right? I think there are other things. But look I, look, I fully accept that one of the frontiers that remains are those human interfaces about trust, man-machine interface of these things. And that, you know, you're, you're choosing that point to be absolutely on that sort of pressure point around, L, you know, is, is L3 feasible or do you actually have to have geofence in some areas with with no with no windscreen um and again i'd come back to the point that by deploying i think with universal autonomy in different places it allows you to get the experiences of what does it mean to be working i mean you know miners have been working with autonomy ports have been working with autonomy um i very much enjoy seeing these uh autonomy artifacts and and conversations about how are you going to run it, deploy it with users by environments that are not just on our roads. And I think that's a really big learning for us. Right. Agreed. 
Um, how about this then? To close things out, um, this might be an unfair question, but with respect to timeline and fully now understanding the way in which Oxbotica is going about deploying this platform for all these different industries, which again is pretty amazing. Um, what what would make you, you know, when do you, when are you happy? When do you celebrate and say, we've done it insofar as, you know, what needs to be deployed when, where, to what degree? Again, this might be an unfair question, but I'm just curious because everyone asks the timeline question, right? No, and it's, it's kind of like a merry tradition, isn't it? That you get the timeline question at the end, and I'll be disappointed if I didn't get it. So here's my answer. So um, we don't say when are we done with computers. We don't say, <laughs> That's well said. Do we? Do we? We don't go. Oh, I'm really, I'm done. It's great, awesome. We go. Well, we just got better during. I bet I could find in the time that we've been talking some announcement about what's happened in the latest piece of silicon mm. uh, on chips and memory access or GPU. So it never done. So I I reject wholeheartedly and blissfully the conversation about when it's done. Right? You get just like there were computers that were good enough for the Newtonian casino, uh, and then there was weather computing, and then there was accounting. There will be autonomy systems that are suitable for their place of deployment, where the operational design domain fits what the technology is, and otherwise it won't be deployed. So I always answer that question as like, it's a continuum, it's not a zero one. Um, And we will deploy in the places that are suitable for autonomy in the right order, and we should do that universally with universal autonomy, yay. Well, that that is good. Uh, No, I do, I appreciate that answer. That's that's a very good way of putting it. All right, then. Um, look, Paul, this has been fantastic. Uh, I feel like we could talk about this for hours. So, uh, But with respect to your time, let's maybe call it a wrap. Um, it has been great to connect. When I'm next over there, I'll give you a shout. Yeah, do. Absolutely. It'd be great to meet you. That was a great end, wasn't it? Th- thanks so much for your time. Um, okay, thank bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. All right. Well, sorry for that rather abrupt ending. We had some technical difficulties there at the end. Paul, once again, thanks so much for joining me on today's conversation really genuinely impressed by what you guys are up to at Expotica. If there's any way we can be of any help in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out. Coming up on Friday, we've got yet another amazing guest. It is Oscar Slotosh. Um, Oscar is the co-founder of Validas. They are a Munich-based company specializing in hardware and tool certification. Uh, They work with all the big automotive OEMs. Uh, I had the chance, I should say the pleasure, to meet with Oscar when My wife and I were in Munich back in October, I guess. Uh, I can't speak highly enough about him. He's a wonderful human being. I think you're going to have a really great time listening to that conversation. I'll be chatting with him tomorrow, Wednesday, and the episode will go live on Friday. So until then, thank you so much for listening. See you back here on Friday. Have a wonderful rest of the week. Bye-bye.